Our series this summer has been looking at Jesus in between the holidays. Many of us are familiar with the Christmas story and the details and the circumstances surrounding the virgin birth and the birth of Christ, what took place in Bethlehem, the wise men, the angels, and we understand those details. Many of us are familiar with the circumstance and stories around what we celebrate every Easter, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Our hope and desire has been to look at Jesus between the holidays, what he did and what he said in a way that may influence our perception, our understanding of who he is that may change our response. We began the series by saying Jesus is both fully God and fully man. It's what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion, that our God became a man. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be happy, and to hurt. He's able to empathize with us in humanity. But he also reveals what God is like to us. He exegetes God perfectly because he walks through every circumstance and situation in life and does it without sinning. So we learn a little bit about God's character, a lot about God's character and desire through the life of Jesus. Jesus is also full of grace and full of truth. He never compromises one to show the other. And in all the circumstances and interaction, we get to see his grace displayed with truth. And today we're going to continue in our series looking at a statement that Jesus made in Luke 14. And it is a truth-telling statement where Jesus is with a group of people and he's telling them to count the cost of following him. He's inviting his listeners to take a cost-benefit analysis. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it's used in investing often, but it can be applied to our decision-making, right? That we understand or interpret the cost and weigh it with the benefits that may be associated with that cost, right? We do it every day, whether unbeknownst to us, right? When I'm doing well, I may consider uh, the caloric intake of a certain food and the cost that might be associated with that, right? Or maybe certain activities, because every yes is a no to something else, right? So, if I'm going to play softball, that may mean I have a little less time for other things, right? And so as we consider, we want to understand the cost and understand its benefits. We often do it with larger decisions, right? How much risk am I comfortable with? I think of uh, when my wife and I were looking to move to Norton, right? We had narrowed it down that there were three neighborhoods we wanted to live in. And so we had set our budget and price range, and I saw on Zillow a, a rather cheaper alternative. And I'm like, well, i got to explore this. So we started considering what it looked like to bid on a house at a sheriff's sale, right? So sight unseen, right, as we're weighing out the risk and costs associated but the benefits. We do that all throughout our life. And what Jesus is doing with this crowd of people that are following him, he's asking them, inviting them to take a cost-benefit analysis 
related to following him. Luke 14, we're going to pick up in verse 25 of this chapter. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he'll choose an alternative route. Send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. I find it interesting that Jesus, as he brings out curiosity and interest in people, begins to have a flock of people that are attracting to him. He has this large group of people that are following him. People that are interested and curious about his message. These aren't necessarily the people that are looking to trap or hate him. And he takes the opportunity not to flatter them and capitalize off the momentum of the crowd, but rather to share the difficulties, the struggles that entail with following Christ. I think of how this message may have landed to this group of people. Some that may have considered themselves followers of Christ now think of themselves as casual observers. I think the same thing is true for us, right? That we can be good about doing things related to uh, maybe on the outside, Christian-looking things, attending church, maybe praying to God, Maybe we even have our radio tuned to The Fish or Caleb or Air One. But when it comes to the difficult moments of saying yes to Christ, we bow out. And Jesus here is talking about the cost associated with aligning one's life to Christ. And he gives expectations for those that choose to follow him. If you'd like to take notes, as we understand a little bit more, he was very clear about the expectations for those that chose to follow him. We're familiar with any job, there's often expectations or requirements to be able to fulfill a job. Right? If you have ever thought about running for the President of the United States, you need to be 35 years old and not have a felony. Right? Or if you want to be a bus driver, you should probably have very limited uh, moving violations. That may be a wise thing not to have on your record. Right? And so what we see is that Jesus plainly lays out the expectations for following him. And he does it by giving us three statements that conclude with this idea of 
unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. Let's take a look at the first one. It's found in verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, or sisters, yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. After service and uh, in conversation, I'll head home and I'll sit down around the dining room table with my wife and we'll have lunch. I'll look across to her and if I were to say these words, Johanna, I hate you. That wouldn't uh, come across very well, would it? Right? I, I don't know. It might be a short lunch. Right? And there's considerable misunderstanding around these words here. Right? Because whenever we interpret a uh, section of scripture, we must understand the whole counsel of what God has said in his word. And we see, as one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, that we are to honor our father and mother. We see in 1 Timothy that Jesus says we're worse than an unbeliever if we don't take care of our relatives. So clearly, Jesus is pro-family, right? He's not asking us to dishonor or abandon or mistreat our family members. What he means here when he says that we must hate others is literally we must love them less than we do him. Jesus is saying that he must be the supreme love of those that choose to follow him. He must take first place in their priorities, in their calendars, and in their life. If you take notes, I'd like you to write it this way. A disciple has unrivaled love of Jesus. A disciple is someone who follows a person. It's not someone who conforms their life to a code of conduct or adheres to a set of beliefs or maybe even graduates from a curriculum. A disciple is someone who loves, follows, and is completely devoted to their master. Jesus is inviting the crowd to consider being his disciples, to make their first commitment to him, to have this unmatched, supreme love for him. It means that Jesus has my full devotion, is at the center of my life, and nothing else takes priority. In preparation, I came across a, a few short statements, an article written by a guy, guy named Kent Hughes. And he goes on to say, in the secularized, anti-family culture of today, our family is at the center of our Christian ethic. He says that's proper. But some of us love our wives, husbands, and children more than we love God. We miss the mark when we put their development athletically, intellectually, culturally, artistically, socially, before their spiritual well-being. We fall short when we spend more time in the car shuttling them to games and lessons than we do in a month in prayer for their souls. By comparison, our lives reveal that we hate God and love our children disproportionately and that we are not Jesus' disciples. In the busyness of life, it's so easy to get caught up in things that we do that are good and we miss out on the things that are most important and great. Right? I want to see my son. I signed him up for uh, another session of soccer yesterday. 
I want to see him develop athletically. He loves soccer. I want to see my kids have friends. I want to see them hang out and enjoy relationships. But I must prioritize exposing them to who Jesus is first and foremost. Because my greatest role as a parent is to be their primary spiritual coach. And my love for God is shown in how I prioritize the avenues and opportunities to expose them to Christ. Do I love God more than I love my family? I think that's what stands out to us about this first statement. But there's something that's easy to miss. Because Jesus says, we must love God even more than our own life. And he kind of flushes that out in the next expectation that he gives in verse 27. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now what Jesus doesn't mean is that we literally have to carry a cross. Have a chain or have something in our pocket or for it to be displayed somewhere in our home or in our church. What Jesus is not saying is a popular derivation of this idea, it's my cross to bear, right? It's commonly understood as some burden that we must bear, whether that's a strained relationship, a thankless job, or at times even a physical illness. People, whether they are followers of Christ or not, have difficulties and trials in life. Taking up one's cross is not an unsaved husband, a nagging wife, or a domineering mother-in-law. It's not having at times to work third shift or for the last 20 years having been a Browns fan. That's not what Jesus is talking about. I'm hopeful this year, you know? It's not a physical handicap or suffering from some incurable disease. It's more than a symbol of the difficulties experienced by humanity. What Jesus is saying is that taking up our cross is willing at all cost to pay any price for Christ's sake. It's a willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, persecution, and even martyrdom. The cross was a symbol of death. I don't know what you think of initially when you look at the cross. But what the hearers of Jesus' day saw and perceived was drastically different. It said over the course of Jesus' earthly life that there may have been as many as 30,000 executions via the cross. In this area that he's directly talking to his disciples about, there may have been as many as a hundred executions via the cross. Because under Roman authority, if anyone disobeyed or had an act of treason, they would literally carry their cross to the place of execution. So as Jesus is talking about his people that are following him, they know the weight and the significance of what it's looked like to bear a cross, that they are willing at any cost to pay a price for the sake of Christ. Now, not 
everyone who's followed Christ has had to die a death of martyrdom. Many of the original apostles did, all but one. Many other disciples have, but it's not something that is as familiar to us. But do you know today around the world, in some Muslim countries, some uh, specific Asian communities, for someone to declare allegiance to Christ is to bring about a death penalty. It's an act of treason for someone to acknowledge their belief in Christ. They have to bear a cross. In other places, consequences may be a little different, but they're significant, right? Often I think of that, we think of it over there and not here. We just sent at the Norton campus a team out to New Mexico yesterday. They are working with the Zuni Native American youth. We have missionaries, Roger and Kathy Scarborough, who choose to invest in the youth of this Native American tribe. There's around 50 believers in a tribe of 11,000 people. So if a teenager chooses to follow Christ as opposed to their native tribal religion, they often experience being ostracized and cut off from their family. Right? That there is a cost with declaring allegiance and following Christ. The cost of Jesus may be exacted emotionally rather than physically. It may be death, but the temptation is often more subtle. For most of us, there comes a point in life where we're faced with a choice. Jesus or the comforts of this life? For some of us, we have to ask the question, would we follow Jesus if it meant losing our closest friends? Those of us who didn't agree with our priorities and how we spent time. I talked with a guy last week who was in that same setting where he had his friends just say, hey, you're not as much fun as you used to be. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. Would we still follow Jesus if it meant alienation from our family? If it meant having people make fun of us or kind of point us out or cut us off or not invite us to certain things? Would we still follow Jesus if it meant the loss of our reputation or maybe the loss of a job? Do I care enough about my integrity and what I believe about Christ that I'm unwilling to say yes to certain things that may be asked of me, even to the point of losing a job? Am I willing to follow Christ no matter what's at stake? I think we miss a little bit of the significance and the regularity with this of where we see in this passage. Because it's actually recorded multiple times in the Gospels where Jesus makes the statement, take up your cross and follow me. Luke records it earlier in Luke 9, and he adds a word that I think is significant for us. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take their cross daily and follow me. Taking up one's cross is a daily choice every morning to surrender my will for his will. Even 
when it's difficult and unpopular. Contrary to what we may often hear, the gospel is free, but it demands everything. The gospel is the free gift of what God has done on our behalf. But we've committed ourselves to a life of following Jesus, of surrendering my will for his will. I think sometimes people experience the gospel message much like uh, maybe a shady car salesman, right? That maybe they're told about the gospel but never told the full gospel. I don't know, I hope this hasn't been your experience. There's a lot of good car dealerships, but if you were to go in and you were told one price only to see when you went to sign your final name on there that they're charging license, tax, fees, inflated tires, knobs on the, on the radio, and you end up paying twice as much as what you were told, right? I tend to believe that some people understand or perceive the gospel that, that, that way, that they understood the free gift that God was offering, but the significance of following him in obedience that is offered. I'd like you to write it this way. A disciple embraces the gospel that requires nothing but demands everything. Think of it like this. Imagine uh, you're married and you and your spouse want to have children, but you're unable to conceive. And maybe you've considered adopting, but um, it's too difficult financially and you can't do it. Maybe you have a wealthy relative or friend who says, hey, I'm going to pay for the entire thing. Your home study, all the medical expenses, all of the paperwork. Your adoption is completely free. But that day when you meet your child, you've now signed up for a life of parenthood. You have dirty diapers to change, sleepless nights, much cost associated with providing care for this child. That is what the gospel requires of us, that we surrender my will for his, that daily we're taking up our cross and following him that we understand there's nothing we can do that is by grace through faith that Jesus offers us a relationship with us. But following in obedience and difficulty is a constant process. It's one in which we continually turn over our will to his will. Jesus gave us the expectation that he has an unrivaled love, that he is first place. He gave us the expectation that we would embrace the gospel at all costs. And he gave us a third expectation that we see in verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This idea of giving up at the root is the word to renounce or say goodbye to. That am I willing with my possessions, with my dreams, with my goals, with my ambitions, to renounce if they ever take the place of following Christ. I think this is significant as we think about our stuff. Because I think there's one of two ways in which we view 
our possessions and our belongings. I think that we can view them as mine, that we can have a clinch fist around everything that we have been given, that I've worked hard to earn what I have. Or we can view them as his, that we have an open hand, that we are just a trustee, trustee, a steward of what God has given us. A disciple surrenders mine for the sake of his. A few chapters later, Jesus has two interesting encounters with wealthy men that highlight kind of the hope or desire that he would have of those that follow him. First takes place in Luke 18. There's a rich young man that uh, has a lot of authority. He's a ruler. And he has the opportunity to ask Jesus a question face to face. You ever thought about that? What would you ask Jesus if you have one shot, right? I think he asks a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds and says, hey, you're smart. You, you know the law. Love God, love others, don't commit adultery, right? Such and such. He responds rather pridefully, arrogantly. I've done all those since I was a boy, right? Jesus could have taken the time to correct him, tell him the significance of the law, how he didn't keep it perfectly, right? That committing adultery is actually that if we look lustfully at someone else, but he doesn't go there. He chooses to go to the heart of the matter. And he says, fine. He says, why don't you sell all of your possessions, give your money to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. You can just think through what's going in this man's mind. How can I tell this news to my family when I go back home? Maybe he's inherited this wealth. What about my status or my reputation? And it says, after considering it, it says the man went away sad because he was unwilling with his possessions to use them in such a way to make a difference for the kingdom. But Jesus follows that up shortly with another interaction by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, in Luke chapter 19, is a name that means pure and righteous. But he is anything but that. He's kind of this sleazeball sinner that other people had called him. I can just imagine he was probably a disappointment to his parents. right? Because he was a tax collector. Now, when we think of tax collectors, we think of the IRS, right? What we do every April 15th. But it's actually a very shady business. One would be Jewish descent, and they would begin working for the enemy, the Roman government. And what they would be asked would be a certain amount that they would be required from their uh, fellow countrymen. Well, anything above and beyond that amount would be theirs to keep. And Zacchaeus was so good at ripping people off that he had accrued significant wealth. To the point, he was training other tax collectors. He was a chief tax collector. Maybe he used this as a way to extract revenge on his classmates. You know, he was short. You know, maybe they made fun of him because of his stature. 
and it was a way to make money. But Zacchaeus hears about Jesus, and he's coming to town. And so maybe you've heard the story, a wee little man climbs a sycamore tree, right? Jesus is coming in, he's perched up in a tree, and Jesus looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. This was an offer of friendship in a very hospitable culture. And we're not told of the details of what happened in Zacchaeus' home. All we see is the end result. That Zacchaeus is so moved and transformed by his conversation with Christ that he moves from being a greedy person to an extremely generous person. Right? Because he responds and says, hey, I'm giving half of my possessions to the poor. The Old Testament tithe was 10%. There was different festivals that may have added up closer to 20%. But Zacchaeus is saying, I'm going above and beyond. I'm going to give half of everything I own. And anyone that I've wronged, I'm going to give 400% restitution for them. Old Testament law required 20% interest. So it would have been 120%. And Zacchaeus is like, I'm going all in and all out because of what he experienced from Christ. That Zacchaeus turned from this to this. That he knew he could use his wealth and significance to bless others and to make a difference for Christ. I don't know about you, but how do you think of your possessions? Is it with a closed fist or is it with an open hand? I know that I can vacillate between the two at times, but can I constantly train and remind myself that everything I have is a gift from God? That he has given me wealth, money, possessions in a way that I can use them for his glory and bless people. Could I live my life in such a way that everything that I think or assume is mine is actually his, and I can use it to care for others? So Jesus lays out these expectations of what it looks like to follow him to this large crowd. And in the midst of doing so, he's telling them to consider the cost associated with following him. And he does it by telling them two short parables to illustrate the choice that they have. The first is in 28. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I'm not the handiest of guys. I'm very fortunate that my dad's a plumber and he can kind of uh, help me where I'm weak, you know, and that we have YouTube. Um, But what I know is that if I ever want to build an addition on my home, the first place I shouldn't start is to knock a hole through a wall and head to Lowe's and get some lumber, right? I need to consider in depth what I am undertaking, right? Is there electrical needs? I may know someone, right? Is there um, HVAC? 
Do I need to pull, uh, pull a permit? What's the total cost to finish this right? Because others would ridicule us for entering into something, not completely understanding what is being expected or associated with it. And if that's not good enough, Jesus gives another short illustration. He really is highlighting this point of the importance of making this choice. And he says, suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Will he not first sit down? They both choose to sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In both illustrations, both short parables, Jesus is inviting his listeners to make a rational decision about following there's emotion involved, but he is asking them to count the cost. The message Jesus proclaimed was a call to discipleship, was not to just faith and belief, but rather obedience in the one who was offering the call. I think the question for each of us is this. Are you convinced that the cost is worth the reward. If I'm struggling with the cost, I must think through what are the benefits in the reward associated with doing so. How often do you think about the reward of following Christ? How would you begin to articulate and think about that reward? That Jesus says, I've come to have life and have it to the full. It's a life for all eternity. It's a life with meaning and purpose and significance and security now. But it's a life forever with Jesus at the center. That I can one day be assured of the promise that I'll live life where there's no pain, struggle, turmoil, no sin, that Jesus will make all wrongs right that there's nothing I can do to earn it, but it's a gift that he's given me that I can spend all eternity. And I'll have the opportunity to meet him face to face. My creator. The one who deeply knows me, but deeply loves me. Has accepted me fully, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. Because when I live in light of eternity, it changes the way I live my life now. There's a missionary by the name of Jim Elliot, and he died for his belief and faith in Christ. And he is quoted as saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which with he cannot lose. Right? That I would live my life in such a way to make deposits in a spiritual bank that would last for all eternity, right? That I wouldn't live my life for just fun in the sun now, short-term satisfaction, but rather long-term influence and enjoyment. I think of the weight of how we process this in the questions we must ask ourselves. I don't think we should leave fearful, but rather inspired. 
right? That the life Jesus is calling us to is something that is inquiring us to be completely all in. It's something worth living with complete devotion and total commitment. For some of us, we may be experiencing the cost of following him. I hope we're reminded that no matter what we experience, it's worth it. James says that our life is a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Our life on earth is short, no matter what we may experience, to the life that God has planned for all eternity. And when we're struggling with the cost, I think in the back of our mind we must always remember the extent that Christ went and the price that he paid on our behalf. That our cost will always pale in comparison to what he experienced. That he experienced being rejected, hated by his closest family members. That he literally carried his own cross. That he gave up everything of himself. Aspects of his divinity so he could become a human and live a perfect life in our place. That any cost that I experience pales in comparison to the price that he paid for me. I so desperately hope for myself and for us that we can live our lives in such a way that we don't question whether we are a disciple, but we live with enthusiasm and inspiration for the short time that God has given us on the earth to live in response of obediently following him, that he gets our full devotion, our unrivaled love, so that we can live our life with purpose and significance, with eternity in our mind, that we together can pursue him, the one that has first pursued us.